Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Fish. Before we get going, we just want to let you know that we have a very special guest on this week. So James is away on holiday at the moment, doing, you know, classic Jamesy things. I'm sure you're going to hear about it on a future podcast when he's back. He's probably eating, you know, weird testicles and living in a cave, that sort of stuff. Classic Harkin holiday. Anyway, in his place, we have the brilliant comedian, Chaparak Corsandi. Shaparak's a really good friend of ours. She's been on Fish before. She did the Comic Relief Marathon, and that video is up on YouTube if you want to watch it. Uh, but she's here for an actual episode this time. And she's not only a comedian, she's a brilliant author as well. She's written three books. Her latest book, which has just come out, is called Kissing Emma. It's a novel for young adults, and it is a modern fable of the untold story of Emma Hamilton, who was Lord Nelson's mistress. So if you have a young adult in your life, do get the book for them, but also do get it for yourself because it is for adults as well. And Shaparak is such a great writer, so funny, so interesting. It's going to be a great read. Anyway, that book is available online and in stores now, so do get a copy. But until then, enjoy Shaparak on No Such Thing as a Fish. Here we go. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and special guest, it's Chaparat Kosandi. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one. And that's Shaparak. So, hello. And my fact is that a doctor in India, Ashokaswani, would prescribe DVDs of Charlie Chaplin to his patients to convince them that, that joy and laughter was the remedy to their malady. Does he do it if he's run out of medicine <laughs> for that day? It's interesting. I mean, look, we say doctor, but he was, and this is a new word that I've learned, Uvedic medicine. So it's. That sounds it's, like you've called him a dick. You want to say that again? Uvedic. Ayurvedic. Is it Ayurvedic? Thank you very much. So. Is that homeopathy? It's lots of different things. Yeah, it's, it's traditional medicine. There's breathing, and the, there are dietary things, and there's herbal treatments, and that kind of stuff. That's that's Ayurveda. I yeah, think. I think eighty percent of people in India, roughly, would practice Ayurvedic medicine. Yeah, but yeah, it's what we would say is alternative medicine. Exactly. Or mindfulness. You know, I think that it. It's the practice of looking after the self and your body and being connected with yourself. But let's be clear, if you're going for your COVID vaccination and they've run out of Pfizer, do not accept the gold rush as a substitute. <laughs> Absolutely. Likewise, if you've broken your leg, the kid will do nothing for you. Just to clarify, even though we're talking about Ayurveda medicine and how it is alternative, actually Aswani prescribes Chaplin for mood disorders, right? And yeah. for psychological problems. So it's people who come with anxiety or or depression and that doesn't seem completely out of this world for some of those issues and there's there's a lot of science that says the old gsoh is associated with living longer i think there was a study in norway that um it took like fifty four thousand people and it looked at how good their senses of humor were don't know how they did that and then it went back 15 years later and the ones with the best senses of humor were more likely to have survived so wow. maybe this guy knows what he's into. I Quantum. think there is something to it. I think, you know, we've spoken about this on the podcast before, where when people were put under pain and duress, 
when they put mm, their, I yeah. think their hands were in ice buckets, listening to Billy Connolly made them feel the pain less. They did uh, show Charlie Chaplin films in hospital. They used to screen it on hospital um, ceilings for the casualties of World War One because Chaplin was wow. such a massive star that his very silhouette would make people feel overjoyed and happy wow. how do you get the moustache into the silhouette you've got to, oh you've got to do sideways on i suppose then it, yeah no no he's <laughs> iconic outside of, you're not looking at the cane bent with the hat going who is Who's that, that? <laughs> who is it well there is someone else it could have been because you know how he one of his most famous films is called The Great Dictator and he was yeah. satirising Hitler. I didn't know this. He and Hitler were born four yes. days apart. That doesn't mean they have the same silhouette on the ceiling. <laughs> well, some, some say that Hitler copied Chaplin's moustache. But was that moustache the fashion back then, the way big beards are now amongst the young and her suit? Yeah, I mean, mm. Hitler was a fashionable guy. And yeah, there's, I don't think there's ever been evidence, but there is someone who did copy Chaplin's moustache overtly, and that is Marcel Proust. <laughs> Why did Marcel yeah. Proust copy it? Was it a direct tribute to Charlie Chaplin? Yes, and because he was the biggest thing ever. I mean, at the time, people were saying he was the most famous person who had ever lived, which was probably yeah. true in about 1915, 16, wasn't it? Because, you know, movies had just become this global thing. He was the Mr. Bean of his time. He could transcend yeah. all language in that yeah. it did not rely on language. And in fact, he, he resisted the talkies when, when they started to talk in films. Chaplin was like, oh, no, 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 no. This, this takes away the purity of, of, of what we do. And this is just a passing fad. And it took him a good long time to make a talking film. I think I've watched mm. The Great Dictator even more times than I've watched Greece. Wow. Really? One of those films I know off by heart. But we do need to know how many times you've seen Greece in order yeah. for this fact to have true like, punch. Oh, I think I watched Greece every Saturday for about four or five years. Okay, now that okay. puts The Great Dictator thing. <laughs> yeah. That throws it into an entirely new light. That's amazing. Well, you know how. <laughs> A lot of people during their sort of darker times in their teens will listen to to music. I would just watch The Great Dictator over and over again and I'd I'd make my friends watch it. And I lost I lost quite a few friends with my obsession with, with that, that particular film. That's amazing. We should say The Great Dictator because this is a movie that a lot of listeners might not know the plotline of or aware of its impact. This was a movie that Charlie Chaplin made in 1940. This was a movie that basically satirized Adolf Hitler and showed exactly what his plans were and his hatred towards the Jewish people of the world and how he was putting them away and how he wanted global dictatorship. And this was at a point where not everyone was really ready to say that that's what Hitler was doing. And Charlie Chaplin got in a lot of trouble for it. But this movie came out while Hitler was really at the beginning of what he was about to do. And it caused huge ruckus. Hitler saw it twice. It's astonishing that this movie was made. But how many times did he see Greece? <laughs> we need to know that for context. You Better Shape Up was apparently one of his favourite songs. It <laughs> blows my mind that Hitler saw this. Like, how can you be Hitler and watch that final speech? Don't fight for these machine men with machine hearts and machine minds. You are not machines. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your heart. How did that not cure Hitler? He thought that was the satire. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with satire. It's too ambiguous. <laughs> That must have really hit home, interestingly, in your family as well, because your dad is a satirist and you effectively had to flee 
Iran because of his direct satire towards the, the power there, right? So Yeah, I think my father was a huge reason why I fell in love with Chaplin. That scene in The Great Dictator when he's on the roof with Paulette Goddard and they're literally escaping with the shirts on their backs and then he sees his barbershop blow up because the Nazis have blown it up and he's like, there goes the barbershop. And that simple little line, there goes the barbershop, there goes everything I have, everything I've worked for, just gone. And now we have to flee everything we know because of these guys, which is exactly what happened, of course, to our family. It's it's a horrible thing. And Chaplin, of course, was exiled from America. America, yeah. It was in McCarthyism, wasn't it? And he was understandably criticised it and then had to leave and move to Switzerland, yes. I think. Yeah. Well, he didn't originally move back to Switzerland. He was on his way back to England. And then they told him on board the ship, by the way, you're not going to be allowed back into the States unless you appear in front of the immigration authorities on charges of political and moral turpitude. So effectively, he couldn't go back. I went to his house in Vevey. <laughs> Did you? Oh, really? The extraordinary thing about it is the Alps are just looking down at you. Like wherever you look, it's just this utter beauty. And it was, um, you know, for someone of his wealth, it, it wasn't an opulent place at all. It was just a lovely family home. Yeah, I mean, I would live there if I was en route to the UK, but I chanced upon <laughs> this place in Vivay. There was this huge problem when he was on his way, which is he had a million dollars buried in his garden. Oh, really? And the story is, and I think there's debate about how, how much of it is true, is that he asked his wife to get a spade, go to the garden, dig it up, convert it into $1,000 bills, sew them into her mink coat, and then just bring them to Switzerland. <laughs> and so... It's a big ask, isn't it? You've got to... I think is. I'd have a divorce over that. <laughs> did she make it? Well, I mean, they lived together in Switzerland until his death. So, yeah, she did. Did she bring the millions with her? I think that has been... A veil has been drawn over that, so we don't know. Let's dig, dig up his old garden, for God's sake. They well, might don't, still be don't there. Don't talk about digging up Charlie Chaplin, because that's exactly what happened to him oh, after yes. his death. <laughs> this is the weirdest yes, element of his yeah. story. He was body snatched. Yes, by these yeah. two guys who wanted to bury him under where he was buried, right? His corpse was stolen really shortly after he died in the 1970s. 75, yeah. 75, and it was these guys who wanted to basically extort Una, one of his last wife, and said, give us all this money because we've stolen your husband's body. And they traced the cause and they caught the guys. And the guys basically said, we, we didn't really mean anything by it. We just wanted to dig him up, bury him a bit beneath where he had been buried before. So it looked like he was gone. And then we had to leg it and bury him in a cornfield. No, that, I mean, that is the worst alibi I've ever heard. They, they wanted wow. $600,000 or the equivalent of $600,000 today for his return. And the police did this incredible sting operation. They launched surveillance operations on 200 phone booths in the area when they were waiting for the call to be made, which is, you know, substantial effort, yeah. I would say. They did never claim to be fair to them that they weren't trying to extort the wife. They just right. said, look, okay. we weren't yeah. going to steal the body. We were just going to hide it. And they did apologise to Una afterwards and she did forgive them. It's what he would have wanted. He was a comic. He would have got the joke. It was just a bit of slapstick. It's amazing that this happened in 1975 as well, isn't it? Like, what? that's pretty extraordinary. Why? Why? What do you mean? Well, because he died in 1977, so... <laughs> oh, my <laughs> yes, God, that's I so sorry. <laughs> I thought that sounded early. I'm so sorry. Why have I written that down? Because I'm wrong. <laughs> Wait, what year so did we Greece go. come out? What, what year did... Oh. Greece come out. Oh, I don't know. 78. Um, came out in 1978. Yeah, you see. 
Are we pretending there's no connection here? Are we really going to sit here? Well, I didn't come to the UK till 79, so I, I missed Chaplin's the stars death of all alike. Yeah. You see? I came in time um, for Thatcher. Well done. <laughs> you timed it right. <laughs> Her films were rubbish. Can we talk a bit more about the insane early popularity of Charlie Chaplin? Because we talked a lot about his later career with The Great Dictator, but his early films, when he moved to the USA, because he grew up in England, incredibly poor, moved to the USA. In his first year there, he made 36 films in 1914. So I read his obituary in the New York Times, and it's full of these unbelievable details about the Chaplin mania, the craze. So for example, I'm quoting directly here from his obituary, one New York theatre played his films continuously from 1914 to 1923, stopping only because the building burned down. <laughs> that what? was how popular he was. I know, I know. But at one point he went to the ballet in Los Angeles. And again, I'm quoting directly, its dancers spotted Chaplin in the audience and halted the show for half an hour while they embraced him. <laughs> wow. Imagine that. It was a disease. It, you yeah. know, going back to the original theme, it was called Chaplinitis. And literally from 1915, basically as soon as he became famous, people reported Chaplinitis. And he was <laughs> everywhere, like from China, Africa, Russia. In Japan, he was referred to as Professor Alcohol because of the way he swayed. Oh. Which is like mad level of global fame for that time. But he always wanted it. I hadn't realised he was so fame crazed. Yeah. On the boat over to America, he basically said, I'm coming to conquer you. Every man, woman and child shall have my name on their lips. And you know who is on that boat with who I believe witnessed that moment of him saying, I'm going to conquer America mm -hmm. was Stan Kim Laurel. Kim Kardashian. Oh, Stan <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Stan Laurel, who was part of the British group of comedians that they were with. They both went to America together. They lived together for a while as well. And he was like, yeah, this guy was insanely ambitious. When they were living in America, obviously they weren't successful as soon as they arrived. They lived in a flat together and apparently they weren't allowed to cook in the flat. That was one of the rules of the tenancy or whatever. So when they were frying pork chops, Stan Laurel would fry the pork chops and Chaplin would play the violin incredibly loudly to mask the sound of sizzling <laughs> meat. My, my favourite... Uh, Chaplin fact is that Jackie Coogan who played the kid I don't think I've ever sobbed so much as when I saw the kid being put on the cart and taken away from Chaplin and outstretching his Agreed. arms and in that film that line for all of this horrific treatment of women um, in his life that beginning line where he says a woman I cry when I even say this out loud. A woman whose crime was motherhood. Such yeah. a simple thing to say at a time when so many unmarried mothers had to abandon their kids or put them up for adoption. Yeah. And that that to me was such a such a support, early support of single motherhood. Of course, his mother was a single mum, so he had a lot of compassion. For, for women who, in, in that predicament. Anyway, Jackie Coogan went on to become Uncle Fester in the Adams yes, family. Yes, in the Adams family. Yes. What? Yeah. That cute, that's, that's... cute little kid that went around with the tramp smashing windows um, turned out to be uh, the gruesome, bald-headed Uncle Fester. Can we quickly go back to the man of who this whole fact was born from? Oh, yeah. Uh, the doctor. <laughs> the doctor. The doctor, Ashok Aswani. He's such a great character. And it's wonderful when uh, you have people championing other characters as their whole life's mission. So he discovered Chaplin when he was very young. 
and he fell in love with him and he tried to get into being a performer himself off the back of Chaplin and doing mime and so on but it didn't work out for him and so he went to become this doctor and just while being a doctor he continued his love so he used to dress up as Chaplin in the streets he went on to set up a big festival and when I say big I think there's something like 300 people go to it every year but it's a tiny town in Gujarat it's not a big place and people from around the world come to visit it and they dress up as Chaplin and they cut a Chaplin cake imagine trying to find your friend in that crowd you're meeting your friend (laughs) at the festival hell imagine even worse him being a doctor and you having a severe case of Chaplinitis booking in to see him (laughs) he turns up dressed as Chaplin and gives you a Chaplin DVD (laughs) nightmare Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that no one really knows what order the Chronicles of Narnia should be read in. Not even C.S. Lewis knew. Is it actually the wardrobe, the witch, and the lion? And it's been in a wrong order all this time. (laughs) So basically, this is something that's been bubbling away in the background amongst academics who love C.S. Lewis and just fans of the Chronicles of Narnia, where they don't actually know which order to read the book in, because there's been various publications over the years that have them put in different orders. So there's a book that appears quite late in the series called The Magician's Nephew, which is actually a prequel to what is thought to be the first book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. So when certain publishers have republished the book series, they'll make The Magician's Nephew book number one. But people argue that, no, that should be later on in the series, like they were originally published. And so the only thing that we really know about C.S. Lewis's preference came from a letter that he wrote to an 11-year-old boy in 1957 who said that he thinks that it should be read in the chronological order, but his mother thought it should be in the original publication order, starting with the line Witch and Wardrobe. So he wrote back C.S. Lewis saying, I think I agree with your order for reading the books more than with your mother's. The series was not planned beforehand as she thinks. When I wrote The Lion, I did not know I was going to write any more. So perhaps it does not matter very much in which order anyone reads them. So even he was like, I'm not going to settle on a side. (laughs) (laughs) And as a result, that letter has been analysed so many times by different academics who use it as him with that final line saying it doesn't matter what order. And then the other academics go to the top of the letter and say, no, he thinks he agrees with the boy's order. And so we just don't know. Christ, which academics are analysing and reanalyzing this very brief letter from C.S. Lewis? It's not Don Jewin, is it? Just, he said it doesn't matter. Just accept it and move on. Yeah, and also you don't know how busy he was when he was writing this letter. Like, it might mm. have been like, oh, honestly, it doesn't matter. Leave me alone. He just had a thing yeah. that he had to respond to letters and he just said something flippantly and didn't really analyse it himself. Because they are stand alone books aren't they yes yeah have you so you're a fan aren't you have you read them all no i haven't read them all but um i'm a massive fan of the line the witch in the wardrobe which i've just started reading to my daughter actually as of last night Mm. i'm such a dipstick that years and years into my adult life having been obsessed with line the witch in the wardrobe all my life i had to go on a television program and talk about it and there was a q a and someone asked me about the fact that it was a christian allegory and I didn't realise. Oh. Okay. Up until I they asked that question. <laughs> I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Absolutely clueless. There was very little religion in my life as a child. And I just thought this resurrection was coincidental with what happened to Jesus. 
But why would you? I mean, there is no reason why you would know as a child. And I, it must true. be interesting reading it as an adult because I'm, I did, I read all the books in the order that they came in the box set, Magician's Nephew first. And okay. yeah, when you're seven or whatever, you're not really looking for the message. And in fact, even if the message is rammed down your throat, you're likely to miss it because you're excited by the idea of going into a, into a cupboard. And there's a <laughs> there. C.S. Lewis, he was a, a serious Christian in lots of ways. And in fact, mm. I think he was described in his obituary as more of a Christian thinker. One of his main obituaries in the New York Times didn't even mention The Lie of the Witch of the Wardrobe, didn't mention Narnia, really? described him as a Christian apologist. And Oh, come on, that is wantonly highbrow to a really pretentious extent. It was well... his biggest hit by a long way. Uh, it was his biggest hit, yeah. But he, he converted <laughs> to Christianity, I really like this fact, on a trip to Whipsnade Zoo. And specifically <laughs> in a motorbike sidecar en route to Whipsnade Zoo. What? I, I think he went with his, his brother or brother-in-law and he wrote later on, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. And the journey was on a motorbike and he was in the sidecar. So he had a conversion to Christianity in a motorbike sidecar. Oh, wow. What happened? What possibly happened in that I sidecar? Don't know. I mean, I think it was probably the culmination of a process. It wasn't as though they saw a burning bush en route. And he just <laughs> thought, oh, okay. Well, um, the yeah. parrot at the zoo told him. <laughs> Do you know that uh, we know the population of Narnia? Exactly. It's oh. 19,252. Is that including the squirrels? Oh, that's a good point. Human population. Sorry. Oh, human population. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's that's because human. There's a real place called Narnia. Narnia yes. exists. It's yes. in Italy. Ah. It's called Narni these days, but in classical times it was called Narnia. And C.S. Lewis saw it as as a young man on a classical map, which was written in Latin, and it just labelled it Narnia, and the name just stuck with him. Yeah. Imagine it could have been Chelmsford. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that would have caught his eye in quite the same way. <laughs> Maybe. I looked into Narnia in Italy and it didn't look as if they had done anything specifically to capitalise on, you know, you could qu you could quite easily turn yourself into a tourist town, couldn't you? Yeah, I think they've probably got the dignity to resist it, is my hunch. Mm. Do you think? Yeah, it's Italy. <laughs> It's not some coastal town okay. in the north of England. This is the Italians we're talking about. They, they've got really nice places. They don't need to <laughs> nick C.S. Lewis ideas. I think they're missing a trick. Mm. Yeah, because if that was in Britain, they'd, they'd be selling little Mr. Tumnus key rings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Even just some sort of like <laughs> yeah. carpentry cupboard shop that is, has a tie-in. You know, do something, use it. What covers with a false back? Yeah. That's a good idea, actually. That's that nice. could be really fun. Well, Dan, you're, I know you're always looking for a pilgrimage to go on to see great places of mm. associated with great people. You can see the wardrobe. The wardrobe is in Illinois for weird reasons. It's the Lewis family wardrobe, which was at his family home in Belfast for years. And then it got moved to his adult home. So it's definitely the wardrobe. And it was auctioned off and taken to a place called Wheaton College. And it's there these days with Tolkien's desk. So they're united even in death. And I bet that's the place that's capitalising on the connection. But I suspect <laughs> so. Illinois is making more of that. You know, the first time walking through a cupboard, it wasn't in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It was in a 1946 essay that he wrote called Different Tastes in Literature. Wow. Yeah. Not, and not as catchy a kid's book name. <laughs> <laughs> that's the he uses it as an analogy of the experience of reading poetry you know you walk through a wardrobe into another realm and he uses that in that book so you know recycled wow. a lot of his ideas did you ever try to to get into narnia as children yes oh my lord yes oh. what, like pushing through the yeah just going if cupboards. i if i just do it maybe this way maybe if i just close my eyes i'll be in narnia 
hours yeah. I spent in the, in the <laughs> cupboard. It was very controversial um, for him when he was writing it because he wrote about the cupboard, the wardrobe, and then he sent a draft of the book to his friend Owen Barfield, whose daughter was Lucy. Lucy was C.S. Lewis's goddaughter, after whom the character of Lucy is named. And anyway, Lucy's mum, Owen okay. Barfield's wife, said, well, this is really dangerous. You can't have this. Kids will start locking themselves in cupboards. That's really dangerous. Poor little Lucy's going to lock herself in a cupboard. And then, so you'll notice, he added all these amendments to the text. There yes. are four or five references in the text. To, yeah, do you remember Same that? Absolutely. Saying, went in the cupboard, leaving it open just a bit because it is very foolish to shut oneself into a wardrobe. And he said that repeatedly. <sighs> exactly. Very sort oh. of like rammed in to make sure. And that probably saved you from locking yourself in a wardrobe. You know what? To this child. day, whenever I climb into a wardrobe, I'm careful to leave it open <laughs> just a little. <laughs> OK, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that the only dog to have been to both the North and South Poles was not a husky, nor any kind of adventure dog, but a small Jack Russell Terrier. Solo yeah. mission? Solo mission. No, slightly accompanied. Slightly accompanied by being Ranulph Fiennes' dog, which did help <laughs> the odds of getting there, sure. Well, Ranulph and Virginia Fiennes' dog. So we've spoken about Ranulph Fiennes before. We haven't spoken about Lady Twistleton Wickham Fiennes, mm -hmm. known to her friends as Ginny, who was his wife. And the the dog was called Bothy, and this was the Transglobe expedition they were on, which we've mentioned so briefly in passing. But basically, it was the mission to cross Antarctica and the Arctic Ocean and to go to both poles on the same trip, which had never been tried before. With a dog? Do we know? I mean, why why the dog? Was the Jack Russell going to come in useful? Was it a backup food supply? No, was the Jack Russell it, what, pulling it... all the sleds? <laughs> Do you know how expensive it would be to put it in the kennels for all that time? Oh, well, exactly. <laughs> I think that they just loved the dog. And Ginny said, well, this is going to take three years. I'm not leaving the dog at home for three years. And she and the dog were very, very close because I think she'd lost her previous terrier. I think it had some awful ending. It sort of drowned in a slurry pit or something. I mean, it was really, really traumatic. Right. She was absolutely inconsolable. So then Ranulph got her this new dog, Bothy, and they were inseparable. And she said, right, we're going to take him all the way around the world. And they did. So up until this point, I've known Ranulph Fiennes as this extraordinary explorer. But I have to say, Ginny Fiennes is <laughs> the coolest person I've read about in years. She is a legend, isn't she? What's, what's your favourite feature, your favourite Ginny feature? She kind of ran the show and no one mm. really ever acknowledged that. She would organise the entire teams that would go along with him. She would set up the camp and she would have the radio going where she would sit and monitor listening out for Morse code for days on end, like listening and then having to organise whatever weird request. I need a whaler ship to pick me up in two days. Okay. I'll just do that then, shall I? <laughs> Sitting here in my cardboard box, which she did. She sat in a cardboard box most of the time when okay, she was out we there. Should, no, hang on, hang on, hang on, Dad. She does, <laughs> yeah, she, I've gone too far. As always, your enthusiasm's carried you away. She did, there were cardboard though. She designed cardboard huts, laminated cardboard huts, which were for when they needed to stay for the winter in Antarctica. It's not the first material you'd think of, is it? When you think, what am I going to no. build? My, the wise man built his house out of cardboard? That's not, a, that's not part <laughs> of the job. No, you're absolutely right. And then they got covered in snow and I think that's what kept them warm. I guess they were light and easily transportable, which 
which is a good thing. And they had tunnels in between the huts. And the other little piggy built their hut out of tin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God there are no wolves exactly. in Antarctica. That's all I can no, say. No, just Bothy yeah. the dog, who apparently repeatedly... Bothy was a terror. Bothy shat in the snow tunnels between the huts. Randall Fine said it's impossible to teach Bothy the difference between outside-outside and outside which is a snow tunnel between the huts. And even on the ship all the way down, Bothy was leaving little presents in everyone's cabins. That's, that's a nightmare. But was very brave, according to Ginny, and all dog owners are biased, but apparently was only afraid once. And that was when he <laughs> came across a bowl-shaped Antarctic sort of snow bowl and he barked into it and then it barked back because of the echo and <laughs> freaked the hell out. But aside from that, very brave dog. Yeah. Yeah. My dog is a bit um, of a hero. And also, I'm a little bit appalled at myself talking about Ginny uh, in the Antarctic with her dog because all I thought about was I hope Ginny cleared up after her dog in the Antarctic and didn't leave little green bags of dog poo all over the snow. <laughs> no, it's really, yeah. that is a very good point. I actually don't know if they did tidy up. And they, they have banned dogs from the Antarctic now. Because, you see, um, ruined it for everyone. Because yes. Ginny left such yeah. a mess. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So it is. Well, no, not J- Bothy, not Ginny. Ginny can't be tidied up after herself. <laughs> we don't know about either. So Bothy, Bothy the dog. Yeah, no, but that probably means that no dog after Bothy will ever go to the Arctic and Antarctic again if the rules it, don't change. There might be a generation of kids in the UK that are aware of Bothy, even though they don't realise it. Bothy used to appear on Blue Peter a lot, and there was a book that was written by Ranulph and Ginny <laughs> about Bothy the dog. Not by Bothy, um, I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Bothy won Pet of the Year, I believe, in 1982, I think after the expedition. And then he was also invited to present a prize at the 1983 Crufts. I don't know how. He turned it down on moral grounds, didn't he? He doesn't agree. (laughs) She did win prizes as well. Ginny, she got the Polar Medal in 1987. I think she was the first woman to get it. And that was because she did important scientific work in the Antarctic, mostly with her radio stuff that she was pioneering. And she was the first woman ever to be invited to join the Antarctic Club. Shaprak, have you been part of any kind of expeditions? I feel like it's a celebrity comedian thing you get invited to. I would love to. I I would love to do that. But no, I haven't. I've I've only done I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, where we just really stayed put, apart from the occasional jumping out of a helicopter. But no, the Arctic, I mean, who doesn't want to go there? It's like my dream to do a trip like that. And just hearing you guys talking about Ginny and her tech work, and how she pulled the whole show together makes me feel like such a knob for taking almost an hour to even get on this call with you guys <laughs> and wasting all of your time. So I, I think... I think that was that was your equivalent of uh, an intrepid journey. Like that was... Uh, you know what that was? It took persistence and grit and, yeah. you And know. I think it shortened my life um, <laughs> in, in some ways. <laughs> I mean, Ginny also, she's definitely suffered for her work. She once got in the Antarctic, she got glued to a lavatory seat because it was minus 50 degrees Mm. Celsius (laughs) outside. Once she went out into the snow and um, she had a a cigarette lighter, a metal Zippo lighter in her pocket, and it burned into her thigh. It burned the shape of Zippo and the lighter into her thigh because of how cold it was out there. I mean, it's not the same, but I had a similar experience and I'm a celebrity, get me out of here because I got glued to the wooden toilet seat um, because I went in after several of the blokes and it wasn't the sort of seat that you can flip up. It was horrific. Yeah, because they they would wee in the dunny. You couldn't flip it up. And then... (laughs) 
you couldn't really wipe it either. So their pee would just soak down into it and there was no getting away from it. And there was a limited amount of loo paper. It was horrific. Oh my God. Did this make, <laughs> did this fact make it to air or is this you giving us exclusive this content? This is about exclusive of... content about the unhygienic. Who's pee? Who's pee? Name names. Oh Come God, on. Dan, no. <laughs> Legally, no. But I will tell you that <laughs> Stanley Johnson and I had to share a towel for the entire time because they wouldn't let us have fresh towels and my towel had got so full of debris like there's so much wood chip it was unusable and so we had this situation that we never talked out of ever again of just we we were never sure whose towel was whose (laughs) you see i think that is hardship i think that does qualify for some kind of not the antarctic club but something i think you deserve a polar medal thank you i mean compare that to having a zippo branded onto your thigh i think me having to share towels in australia's gold coast was a lot worse with Boris Johnson's dad, we should say, for mm. foreign listeners. Yeah. yeah. Just back to Ginny for a second. Before she was doing these adventures with Ranulf, she had amazing adventures in her own right. And one really bizarre one, which is in 1972, she was commissioned by Woman's Own magazine to go and live with an Omani sheikh in a village for two months. The idea being that she would be his third wife. And there was a very very strict understanding between all parties that there was going to be no hanky-panky that it was just purely her living the life to see what the life was like and she did it she went out there and she lived with them and she basically fell in love with the family to the point where she decided not to submit the article because Mm. she wanted to respect their privacy and then in that area it's where she then with ranolf finds went and found a completely lost city to time. Oh, yeah. This is just amazing. The lost city of Ubar. They'd heard rumors about it. No one could find it. Ranulf and Ginny obsessed over it, spent years and years looking for it, and eventually it was solved when we started getting aerial shots via satellite that they were able to spot something in the sand, and they uncovered it and they found it. Incredible. This completely lost city of Ubar. Was it the frankincense city? I think it was, yes. where they did all the frankincense yeah. trading, so it must have been this incredible, rich-scented place. I think they smelled it out. But I'm sure. I'm sure. Probably Bothy. Bothy. Yeah. Bothy yeah. Out there, yeah. <laughs> and she did all this stuff without being, you know, she wasn't physically tough. So, for example, she could do two laps of a running track and then she had to lie down. She wasn't a strong woman, but I mean, but she still went on this 35,000 mile Transglobe expedition. She had to take a hot water bottle to the Arctic because Ranoff liked sleeping with the windows open, which I find completely. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, what? Yeah. And sometimes. When they were, you know, overwintering, this is at the other end of the planet, on the Antarctic, um, she wouldn't answer the radio. And twice, Ranulf came back to the cardboard hut and found that she was unconscious from carbon monoxide poisoning. What? Um, and I know. From what? Oh, God knows, a bit of the equipment going wrong or... Um, Jesus I, I don't know what it exactly caused it. But yeah, there were just so many moments of near total peril and failure on this expedition. And she took it all pretty well, didn't she? She was clearly yeah. very hardy. She sounds formidable, I think is probably the word yeah. you would use. So everyone was kind of terrified of her. Like your <laughs> most respected but strict headmistress is how I imagine her. I think when mm. she heard that Ranulf had had to have his fingers amputated you know he had to amputate the ends of his five fingers (laughs) it was through frostbite right (laughs) yes 
But then he sawed them off himself yeah. at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her first response was, oh, damn, we'll be shorthanded on the farm now. Not a lot of sympathy. Wow. Is that a shorthanded joke? Because his fingers are literally shorter because he sawed them off. I don't think it was an intentional pun, but it obviously has that okay. other layer that you can enjoy. Great. That's how good she was. If you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One kind of really amazing fact about Ginny is that she died, I think, in 2003. Although, Dan, you may well tell me it was actually 2005. Um, but It was 2004. <laughs> you're kidding. Unbelievable. No. Unbelievable. You know what? I'm going to start writing dates down. All right. She died in 2004. I think she may have been diagnosed with cancer in 2003. She found out about her illness when Randolph, her husband, was away. He was running seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. And she didn't mention it to him in case he abandoned the attempt and changed it. She wanted him to, you know, get on with it and finish it. And I think that is a sign of the kind of woman she was, you know, completely. That strong spousing. Yeah, extremely brave. Mm. Guys, can I tell you about the first all-female expedition to the North Pole? Because it's a really fun story. This was in the 90s. And basically, this woman... Caroline Hamilton, who was a financier, she hated all forms of exercise, never done really any in her life, decided, I'm going to take a bunch of women to the North Pole. And she put an advert in the newspaper, in the Telegraph, I think, saying, hey, are you a woman who has no hiking or exploring experience? And do you want to come to the North Pole? Get in touch. And all these women did. And it's the coolest story. They went on a trial weekend somewhere in the UK, which was quite rough. I think it was in Dartmoor, an induction weekend. And there was like this woman called Anne Daniels, who was a mother to toddler triplets, who I think his marriage wasn't going that well. She was not sporty or outdoorsy at all. She cried her way through the induction weekend. And it was all sorts of women like this. And they did it. It was five teams of four who were selected, uh, just from ordinary women. And it was sponsored by McVitie's. So they had 7,000 biscuits to get them through the trip. 7,000 biscuits. 7,000 biscuits. Yeah, nothing else. And yeah, they made it. And now a bunch of them are explorers. So Anne Daniels is one of Britain's leading explorers. She's done 10 polar She's amazing, yeah. When they got back from their first trip, they must have, you know, had a lot of um, diplomatic receptions and things to go to. They must have done a lot of hobnobbing. (laughs) (laughs) That has cured all my ailments. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Murray. I had mild eczema on my thumb and it's just disappeared. (laughs) Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show and that is Anna. My fact this week is that the character of Don Corleone in the novel The Godfather was based on the author's mother. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great because when you watch The Godfather... It's Marlon Brando. So it's it's a completely different character. But this is the guy who wrote the book, Mario Puzo, said that he'd never met a gangster. A lot of people assumed, because it was kind of such a real portrayal, that he'd been embedded in gang life for years. Never met a gangster. And so he said, whenever the godfather opened his mouth in my books, in my own mind, I heard the voice of my mother. And he describes his mother as having the wisdom, the ruthlessness, uh, the unconquerable love for her family and for life itself. But his mother, he was from an Italian immigrant family and lived in New York. And his father was committed for schizophrenia uh, quite early on in his life. So his mother raised seven children on her own and was clearly this another formidable woman. The side that he relates as his mother being similar to is things like when the father was committed to the asylum, he could have returned, but the mother made the decision not to let him out. 
Puzo said that she thought he'd be a burden okay. on the family and he says that's a very mafia decision that she wow. was like no keep him away Puzo also said that whenever he heard Brando speak the lines he could hear his mother's voice he was like ah oh, it's mum again yeah. so like properly that even in the bizarre. movie interpretation of it yeah okay yeah. the other really really weird thing about Mario Puzo The Godfather was the second novel he wrote based on his mother he wrote one called The Fortunate Pilgrim. That was his second book. Mm. And the main character in that is a woman called uh, Lucia Santa. And he said that she is based on his mum as well. Yeah. There was a publisher who read uh, The Fortunate Pilgrim and said, look, didn't really love the book, but that one tiny gangster character, <laughs> that was good. Do you think you could expand that? That's amazing. And he just went away and wrote The Godfather because of that. The <laughs> amazing thing was just how successful it was because his first two novels in total had earned him $6,500. So his lifetime earning from books at that point was six and a half thousand. I'm so glad things have changed with books. <laughs> well, yeah. It was really interesting, his career, because he had written these failed novels and he desperately wanted to be an author. And it was only into his 40s that he then started writing The Godfather and that's where his life changed. And he knew that this was the last attempt and if, if it didn't work, he was going to do something else. And he tried to work for other people. Like He worked for Stan Lee at one point when Stan Lee was doing comic books and he he was almost a comic book writer, but he just couldn't make it work. Really? But we could have had Mario Puzo Spider-Man. I'm happy with Mario Puzo Godfather. I'll stick to that. Yeah, I don't think being bitten by a radioactive horse's head <laughs> is as thrilling. We did have Mario Puzo Superman because he is the screenwriter behind Superman 1 and Superman 2 with Christopher Reeve. Oh, is he? Oh, wow. Of course, yeah. Yeah, but um, <laughs> there's this great story that when he was writing screenplays post Godfather 1 and 2... He sort of got anxiety realizing, you know, I'm an author. I've adapted my books into being screenplays, but I don't really know how to do this. So he bought a book on screenwriting and he said he had to stop reading it because in the first chapter, the book said, study Godfather 1. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, it's the model screenplay. Yeah. Nightmare. Shafrak, with your novel, because he's used mm. characters from real life in the latest one, Kissing Emma. Are any family members going to look at that and go, hang on a sec? No, um, I've written two novels and absolutely none of my characters or events have been based on any persons in real life. Shaprak, why are you reading that off the card? <laughs> <laughs> no, of course I have. What is it? They say that um, when there's a writer in the family, there's a traitor oh in the God. family. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a really grim part in, the, in, in Puzo's book that didn't make the film. That I read, you know, I, I can't remember how old I was when I read the, the book, but I was a kid or a young teenager that absolutely um, mortified and, and distressed me. Um, and it was a very early um, clue of what the Hollywood scene was like um, way before Harvey Weinstein and all that. Do you know the part I mean where it, 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 there's a famous Hollywood producer and it's 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 a tiny little blink and you'll miss it detail where he sleeps with a very um, young girl of about 12 or 13. And it says since his wife died, his heart's been so broken that he can only get aroused by very, very young girls who were taken to him to sleep with by their mothers in the hope that he'll put them in a film. And it describes the scene Whoa. where this, this, this young girl is being held up by her mum. That then makes you feel better about the gruesome way that this producer is then treated. And wow. obviously they left that out of the, of the film because mm -hmm. it's not there. 
but even in the book that's that's a part of it that when I first read it as a young girl myself that really stuck with me it's like is that what they do is that what happens in Hollywood it's just really interesting how that bit was really bypassed uh, mm. but it was a massive clue and I wonder how much Puzo did know about the industry and how how common knowledge that was. I think we've blown this open in that Puzo had some kind of amazing prescience or psychic yeah. powers because he was not involved in Hollywood at all. So he would not have known. Mm. But he could see, he could see into gangsters, he could see into Hollywood. He saw the Yeah, thing. it's the Nostradamus of the, the crime world. Uh, yeah. Cosa Nostradamus. World. Nice. They were pretty heavily <laughs> involved in the filming of The Godfather, the mafia. Yeah. It's this crazy story they only allowed the godfather to be made on the grounds that the word mafia was never spoken so this was because they wanted to film in new york they had to film in new york uh, they couldn't use a set it wouldn't look real and the mob boss in new york at the time was this guy called joe colombo senior and he basically said to the producer albert ruddy okay you can't mention the mafia because the mafia doesn't exist mate we don't even, it's not a thing. And you're just going to give Italian immigrants a bad name. This was while he was running the head of one of the biggest gangs in New York. So he said, don't mention the mafia. And also we want all the proceeds from the film <laughs> premiere. Just the premiere. If we don't get them, something bad could happen. Terrible. <laughs> well, it, um, it works. It works on Albert Ruddy. He actually promised all the premiere proceeds. Oh, my God. And awfully, the studio then went back on that promise, which must have been a terrifying moment for Ruddy when... They said, we're not actually going to pay them. Him going, okay, well, what's going to happen to me? But well, Good news is we no longer need dye for the red carpet. It's just going to be naturally <laughs> red, actually. <laughs> the thing I love about the book as well is that Puzo wrote it from research, didn't know any gangsters, but he met gangsters through the success of the book who flat out refused to believe that he'd never been a gangster himself. <laughs> and then mm. mafiosi themselves, they started doing the cheek-to-cheek kisses based on the movie. Like, no one called each other a godfather before Puzo did. And then it, that became oh. a mafia term. The mafia basically are a tribute act to the novel The Godfather <laughs> these days. And if they've heard this, Andy, you are in serious trouble. Tribute act <laughs> to a movie. Um, something else that came up in his book, which didn't make it in. Did you guys read about this? Well, you, you will have read it, Shabrak. This is the subplot about Connie's. So, you know, Connie, the daughter mm. who has the wedding at the start. Her maid of honour, Lucy Mancini, who has, has a vagina that's too big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre plot. She's yeah. going out with Sonny, if you remember yeah. the character of Sonny. But he can go out with her and it works because he's quite well endowed. Oh. Um, and then he doesn't last the first film even. And I think she struggles. Anna, that's, um, I forgot about that bit until you just said. And now, of course, <laughs> the memories of how I felt reading that are coming flooding back to me. And I'm thinking perhaps I was probably too young to read that book. Because she yeah. she was she was a gorgeous woman. She's described as a gorgeous woman, but she had this big baggy fanny. And it does... <laughs> It was so graphic. It was like Bukowski style graphic. Wow. Um, how funny that as a bloke, he sat down and he created this character that needed. Uh, like, anyway. It's not, it's not a female yeah. author, is it? Once you get to no, that. No, it is not a female author. <laughs> not a woman who's written that. What a bizarre subplot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank God it wasn't relevant to the storyline. He didn't have to keep it in. Doesn't sound like he could keep it in, frankly. Do you know? Um, I really hope, you know how his publisher read the previous book and spotted that tiny mafia character and went do a whole book about that. I really hope he saw that character and went, that, that big fanny lady, that's the next book. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. Shaparak. At Shapikosandy. And Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Do check them out. Also, do go to the website to find tickets to our upcoming tour. We start October this year. We're going to do November and January. It's going to be a big old UK tour. See if we're coming to a city near you. But most importantly of all, do go out and buy Shaparak's new book. It is called Kissing Emma. It is out now. It is in shops. It is online. Okay, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.